electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been with my friends just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to explain how days like today can happen. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I've been thinking. Maybe what happened here is we did such a good job saving the economy that it just can't be derailed by a few measly large rate hikes. I mean, that is the reason why the market got slammed again today. Dow plunging 351 points. Thank heavens it was bet- really was much lower at one point. The S&P plummeting 1.44%, but the Nasdaq nosediving 2%. Worst two-day decline in more than a month. We have simply had too much of a good thing. And a lot of those good things come about because we bounced back so quickly and strongly from the pandemic. And that momentum is proving very hard to break. It's almost like we forgot there was a pandemic. It is difficult to remember what it was like in the spring of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. I can't blame anyone for wanting to block out that whole episode. We lost one million people to a virus we never heard of a few months before. But J-Pal knew how bad it was. When things started getting really scary, March 3rd, he slashed the federal funds rate by 50 basis points to a range of 1% to 1.25%. Then 13 days later, came out in 13 days, he cut another 100 basis points, talking, taking us down to the 0 to 0.25% range. Yet things just kept getting worse and worse. They say a picture is worth 1,000 words. So why don't we do this? If you want a picture that captures the COVID crash, I'm going to put one up. Look at the stock of Carnival, the cruise company. We started freaking out about people getting sick on these ships, so people stopped booking on them. And then the government ordered the ships grounded. Suddenly, these heavily indebted behemoths with tens of thousands of employees were teetering. Look at this decline. That's 54. All the way down here, you're talking about nine. Yeah, that's right. And this is just a single-digit midget right here. It showed no real sign of bottom either because there was a genuine fear, and actually logical fear, that this thing was going to go under. It actually made sense that, that if it did, 
Then on March 23rd, something happened. Jay Powell, Fed chief, pulled out all the stops. He issues a press release, which sure seems mild-mannered, not unlike him. Quote, Federal Reserve announces extensive new measures to support the economy, end quote. Oh, but it was the furthest thing from being mild. Powell basically declared war against bankruptcy in any form. Remember, we were looking at double-digit unemployment back then. So he wanted to cushion the blow by preventing layoffs, particularly to public companies. The easiest way to do that is for the Fed to make it so it's incredibly easy for businesses to borrow money. Remember, that became the problem. Listen to this. After that, there were a slew of different facilities that he put into place. A lot of them look like what should have been done and wasn't done until the end of the financial crisis. Done too late to prevent a lost decade for the economy. Powell had read about the Great Depression. was a great student of He lived through the Great Recession. He didn't want to preside over some great pandemic cataclysm. He saw mass layoffs on the horizon, so he quickly moved to staunch the bleeding. Yes, that's terrific. We forget that. It drives me crazy that we forget that. Powell solved the mass unemployment problem, but he, and a much more profitable Congress than he thought, created a new problem, the inflation problem, that we're now dealing with. Witness the ground zero of the pandemic, Carnival, let's go back to that, which suspended business on its Princess Cruise Lines on March 13th, was suddenly able to sell, because of that statement I read you from, nearly 72 million shares at eight bucks at just weeks later, while also issuing $1.95 billion worth of 5.75% convertible senior notes and $4 billion uh, worth of 11.5% senior notes. Carnival never would have been able to raise that money without Jay Powell and his Fed backstop. It saved this company from going under. The company would have definitely filed for bankruptcy. And you know what would have happened? How about this? 120,000 jobs saved by Powell, like anybody cares now. And that's just one example. You make the same point about the whole cruise industry. At the exact same time, Congress gave the airlines $54 billion in relief, keep them from going under. The situation remained dire until the end of April when Boeing, another teetering enterprise, came to market with a monster $25 billion bond offering no government assistance needed, a sign that capital markets were finally thawed and business could continue despite the pandemic. Of course, back then, we had no idea how long the COVID economy would last. I mean, come on, we didn't, we didn't know. Who would have known Moderna? Who the heck was Moderna? I was the only guy I ever had him on TV before. Hey, Pfizer. Okay, well, that Pfizer was not known as being a breakthrough drug company. Who would have thought that they would have had the vaccines before the end of the year? I've gone back and looked at hundreds of articles about the virus from that period, and I couldn't find one story arguing that we could get a vaccine faster than four or five years. I mean, I had the mumps. I mean, it doesn't even sound like a disease anymore. But it took them five years to develop a mumps vaccine. And this thing was killing people left and right. The Fed's liquidity injections seem minuscule versus the scale of the threat. And I'm not even talking about all the stimulus checks or the moratorium on evictions or the child tax credits or the suspension of student loan payments. The result, we beat the pandemic so quickly that the checks were still in the mail when the world started going back to normal and cash balances went sky high. Now we're paying the price for all of that largesse, but I would tend to think it's more of all that oxygen because the economy came back too quickly and now we've got inflation all over the place. The Federal Reserve is frantically trying to stabilize the situation. They want to tamp down on wage inflation because wage inflation is systemic. But business is so darn healthy, nothing they do seems to matter. After so many rate hikes, you'd think that we'd be flooded with bankruptcies and layoffs. That's what they thought. No. And I'm going to give you a staggering statistic that you've not heard from. One that is just going to blow your mind that people should be talking about. Bankruptcies. Bankruptcies, both public and private, are pacing at the lowest level right now 
after all these rate hikes, the lowest level since 2010, according to S&P Global. Lowest since 2010. Almost no one's going bankrupt, which means not enough layoffs to cool down the overheated job market. Amazingly, only two companies that have more than a billion dollars in liabilities and were publicly traded have filed for bankruptcy in 2022 with more than one billion in liabilities. Revlon and GWG Holdings, hardly major employers, two that you're really not focused on. All these rate hikes have yet to cause mass firings and mass filings. And that's just not going to cool the economy. It is true that equity markets are pretty much frozen, right? Hardly any companies have been able to raise money right here. Why? Well, I mean, there's just not enough money around. The stock market's scared to death, just like what we had today. That's what's happening. Yet even the most marginal, newly public enterprises just keep chugging along. You think some of these SPAC names will run out of money soon, right? I mean, come on, so many of them are horrendous, but they haven't run out of money. Can you imagine? Until Sam Bankman-Fried came along with his FTX crypto collapse, there were only a handful of sizable private bankruptcies, and they were all absorbed very quickly. How could this be? Simple. The government did too good a job bailing us out during the worst period of the pandemic, and CEOs have cleverly managed to beat back bankruptcy as things have become more difficult. If there were ever a candidate to go bankrupt in a pandemic, it would be the movie theater chase. But Adam Aaron, the redoubtable CEO of AMC, managed to raise money by summoning a full planet of apes eager to bid the stock up in a buying frenzy. That's how a company with $10 billion in debt and lease liabilities could stay alive in an industry that should never have been able to survive a pandemic. And by the way, anyone who bought the stock above seven has been crushed. But the institution's been preserved. And it should have been torn asunder. All that said, I'm sure there'll be many layoffs after Christmas. I don't want to finger point the retailers who've been uh, most likely to be thrown into bankruptcy when the holidays are over. But I do want people to realize that, in a way, our current high inflation economy is the high, quali- the high quality problem left over from what had to happen. Our leaders did a great job of saving struggling businesses. If anything, they did their job too well. Let me ask you, though, would it have been better if they saved these companies or let them all go? We had a low inflation recovery after the Great Recession. I'm liking this high inflation recovery from COVID a lot better. Here's the bottom line. Hindsight is 2020, but J-PAL was dealing with the unknown back then, and he did it with gusto. The result, the lowest unemployment rate in decades paired with the highest inflation rate in decades. You win some, you lose some. Gene in California. Gene. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call and for all the advice you've offered over the years. I'm a long, long time fan. Um, I was calling today about eBay. I, um, in uh, taking some of your advice, decided to go through all the uh, stocks in my portfolio, looking at the fundamentals, and was surprised at their um, earnings loss. um, I've held it for a long time through the uh, PayPal. It's a, you know, I've got to tell you, Gene, it's a faltering business. I mean, it's a good one. I was on the site the other day counting, by the way, crypto mining devices, seeing who's selling those. And you know what? It's so-so. It looks very It looks very 2009, the site. Or maybe 1999. It's kind of embarrassing, frankly. I like Etsy much better. Jay Powell was dealing with the unknown at the height of the pandemic. And you know what? He did a great job with Gusto. The result, we got the lowest unemployment rate in decades, but it's paired with the highest inflation rate in decades. You know what? It could be a lot worse. On May tonight, there was a one-two punch 
out in the REIT space last week that had investors worried. So what should you make of the cohort now? And is there still opportunity to be had? I'm going to take a close look. Then with the major averages falling today, should we be worried about this tape as we exit bear market rally mode? I'm not sure, but I'm going to go up the charts to find out. And you know what? Someone called about super microcomputing after the light, during the lighting round. Oh, man, what a monster. I'm going to turn in my homework. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. All right, we need to talk about the second most disturbing story of last week, not the overheated employment report on Friday. That's number one. I'm talking about the news on Thursday that Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, or BREIT for short, is barring further withdrawals from the fund after reaching its quarterly limit. Now, come you know, sounds boring to you. It's a big deal, a really big deal. Blackstone REIT is a non-traded real estate investment trust, meaning you can't buy publicly traded shares on the open market. It's probably why you haven't heard of it unless you're in it. Instead, it's a behemoth in the real estate industry with a $69 billion net asset value, at least as of October. That only takes wealthy private investors as shareholders. The fact that their huge non-traded REIT is barring investors from taking their money out of this month, this month raised a lot of eyebrows, not to mention putting a dent in its parents' company's stock. 
I mean, and a nasty one for a company that just, you know, I have been recommending for a very long time. And Blackstone Reed hitting its withdrawal limit was just the first in a series of attention-grabbing real estate stories. Over the weekend, Starwood Reed, another well-known private real estate investment trust, made a similar announcement. Then just yesterday, SL Green, which is an office suite of some renown, announced a dividend cut. Hey, that's a one, two, three punch of bad news for real estate space. But while these stories are important, they're not a good reason to panic, which is why we're going to be a little contextual this evening. Let's start with Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust. BREIT, the massive private REIT that is distributed through select financial advisors, meaning it's only available to rich people. And I got to tell you something. I know a lot of people in this. I know a lot of people who worry. This fund has a wide range of real estate exposure across the United States, although 55% is rental housing, all right? 23% is industrial properties, with everything else kind of making up a much more piece of the pie. But this is what we're really focused on, okay? This is what everyone is worried about. The thing about BREIT is that it's widely known for putting up excellent returns. Its most popular Class D shares have had a 15% annualized 1.5 over the last three years. That is dynamite. And even with the Fed's rate hikes, the darn thing was up nearly 9% for the year at the end of October. In many ways, Blackstone breathed new life into this entire niche when they rolled out their private REIT five years ago. Just a great way to get exposure to real estate with a generous dividend. A month and a half ago, you were looking at a 4.3% yield in this thing. But of course, we, we know things have gotten a little more difficult for all things real estate. Now that the Fed's made it much more expensive to get a mortgage. Hey, but I was looking at a 7.5% mortgage the other day. And last Thursday, Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust acknowledged this new suboptimal reality when they released a notice to shareholders saying that they're limiting withdrawals at least through the end of the month. And by the way, it was on that you knew when you put your money in that this could happen. So this was not a surprise. And I want to be sure that everybody realizes it was totally above board. But why did they have to do that? Because since the fund's inception, they always limited withdrawals at 5% of their asset value in any given quarter. And they've now hit the limit. Okay, alarming headline. At the end of the day, though, it, is it really a surprise that investors want to pare back the real estate exposure? Specifically, they want out of residential real estate and fear valuations are being marked too high versus a potential decline in potential housing. They, they, they know that themselves if they own houses. If anything, I'm surprised it's taking this long. Pending home sales were down 37% in October, which is an incredibly bad number compared to last year, for heaven's sake. Of course, it's a little more complicated than that. This Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust had amazing performance. So it's become an outsized position in the portfolios of many rich people. Now they're scaling back because we're in the wrong part of the business cycle. Rational? Why does any of this matter? First and foremost, it's bad news for Blackstone itself because this business has been a major profit driver. This fund charges investors 1.25% in assets per year and also takes 12.5% of the returns. I mean, that's higher than your typical stock and bond fund. What a home run for Blackstone. So now it's kind of no wonder that Blackstone stock tumbled more than 7% last Thursday. I mean, this thing, uh, you know, look, this is a really good company. So when I saw this, I said to myself, bingo, it's got to be that real estate business they have. It was. Blackstone's a major player and one of the most solid ones. But the real worry here is contagion. See, if people keep trying to pull their money out, BREIT, even if they're limited to 5% per quarter, that could eventually force this fund to start selling assets in order to pay these investors back. That could put further pressure on residential real estate prices across the country. Hey, man, I'm sure the Fed's helping for that. That's Fed Nirvana. I don't think this private REIT is headed into a death spiral. It's the opposite. I think they'll come out eventually okay. But I do think they end up having to unload a lot of houses and apartments, and that could put pressure on the whole complex. 
Now, over the weekend, we heard another story that I didn't like. It's from Simon Property Trust. And they were on with, with Sarah this afternoon. The non-public REIT sponsored by Starwood Capital. And that's Barry Sterling. Now, these guys have two publicly traded mortgage REITs, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Starwood REITs heavily into multifamily residential real estate, two-thirds of their assets. These guys have the exact same rules about redemption limits. You can't withdraw more than 2% of net asset value per month or 5% per quarter. Apparently, they received withdrawal requests for 3.2% of net assets value last month. So these investors are only getting prorated redemptions, not the full amount that they wanted. Again, these are big stories. But there's nothing surprising here. Rich investors who love this fund when real estate was strong hate it now that real estate's rapidly weakening. No kidding. Now, there's a rush for the excess, but the excess are only so large because real estate's not exactly a liquid asset. Although when they did all these deals, they made you did feel like it's a lot more liquid. Same thing, by the way, the Zillow guys did. They just made you feel like it was just kind of, you know, like monopoly money. Again, if you want out here, you are betting against Sterwood CEO Barry Sterling. That's often a real bad bet, just like it's a bad bet against Jonathan Gray, who runs uh, Blackstone. But so far, the bad bets are winning. Finally, yesterday, we got some truly bad news from S.L. Green, a publicly traded office street that happens to be the largest landlord in Manhattan. These guys held an investor day event where they highlighted a bunch of exciting new properties and punched you in the face with a grim outlook for the next year. The analysts were expecting them to generate $6.22 per share in funds from operations for 2023. That's the key metric. Now they think it's going to be more like $5.30 to $5.60. Finally, they pulverized you with a 12.9% dividend cut. This is Manhattan real estate. I thought it never went down. Wrong. S.O. Green's stock was already down 52% from its 52-week high because people feel that office, particularly older office buildings, just aren't worth as much. It's hard to make them into residential. And we know about people working. The millennials, they work like a dollar. Boy, they work like a day and a half now a week. I still come in. Anyway, it tumbled another 6% yesterday before losing more than 6% more today after multiple analysts downgraded this thing. This thing is, now this one's in a bad spiral, all right? I mean, you look at it here to here. This has got a negative situation brewing. Uh, now, it's now, it's, it's now at its lowest level since September of 2009. Remember that period? Stunning. I'm not sanguine about the business of owning office space, especially when the people aren't coming to work as much as they used to. But the stock's trading at, at great recession levels. I think S.O. Green did the responsible thing, but obviously you don't want to own something that's about to have a down year and just cut its payout. So what do we make of all this? First, I can't stress this enough. None of this should take anybody by surprise. I mean, look, I've been talking about it for so long. You would think, oh, my God, hey, listen, I've been watching that Kramer. I'd put my money out. So, like, give me a break, will you? The need for much higher rates over a year ago and much higher rates are awful for real estate. I don't think there's anything too alarming about these private REITs hitting their withdrawal limits. By design, it's hard to take out your money. But when things deteriorate, everybody wants out at once. Not your problem unless you've got your money in one of these things. Second, these negative headlines are dragging down even quality publicly traded REITs that don't deserve to get hit. And that's where some bargains are being created. You know I like Prologis, the best logistics REIT. People are down on them also because of Amazon. I like Federal Realty, which is all about mixed-use properties in rich suburbs. That's Don Wood, totally forthcoming, always willing to come on the show. And, by the way, totally stand-up. Didn't cut that dividend when everyone told me he should. Let me the bottom line here. You need to be aware of what's going on in the real real estate market, but no need to panic. These negative headlines are exactly what's supposed to happen when the Fed tightens aggressively. If anything, it's good news because it means we might finally start making progress in ending housing inflation. Please, Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, is the Santa rally a reality or will Kris Kringle get caught napping? 
Kramer goes off the charts to find out next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. a very nice run for the better part of two months. As well as we got accustomed to the idea that the Fed might be able to beat inflation without totally wrecking the entire economy. You know, I have not given up on that thesis. But this week, though, we've given up some of those gains, in large part because last Friday we got that red-hot employment or didn't fit the thesis, right, of the soft landing, suggests the Fed needed to continue to bring the pain. Honestly, it almost feels like we reassess Jay Powell's potential next move on a daily basis based on very limited data. But that's the market we're stuck with. And suddenly our collective assessment got a lot more negative in the last 48 hours. I think it's very difficult to get a clear read on the situation. Fundamentals are murky, right? That's why I like to fall back on something clinical. I like to fall on the technicians for some guidance based on a quantitative view of the current situation, not a qualitative one, not touchy-feely. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Jessica Inskip. She is a brilliant technician. She was the first woman on the active trader desk at Fidelity before becoming the director of advanced uh, trader strategy at Merrill Self-Direct. Now she's the director of product and options education at Options Play. But she still consults with all the major brokerage firms in self-directed space and helps us here, too. Plus, you can see her every Thursday on Friday, Thursday on Fidelity's weekly options trading show, In the Money. Now, a few weeks ago, Inskip told us that the market's recent run could have legs. She said it would go through mid-December. But now that mid-December sneaking up on us, she's feeling a lot, more, a lot less constructive, a lot more concerned. And just to be sure, as you know, we did catch a great rally with her. That's what really matters to me. Why? Why is she getting a little more concerned after this terrific, nice run? Well, you got to take a look at this. This is a picture of a market that's hostage to the Fed. And the Fed's hostage to the labor market, which is currently way too hot, as we know from last Friday. Inskip sees the whole advance from mid-October through the end of last week as, yes, a bear market rally, a temporary bounce within a larger downtrend. Once we got that overheated non-farm payroll report last Friday, the S&P 500 stalled out at two ceilings of resistance, and these were very key levels. S&P 500, 
right here. It, it's 200-day moving average. 200 is the SMA. Okay. And the uh, it's downward sloping trend line. And that's going back uh, to the peak last year. This is a key hurdle the market had to jump. And sadly, well, we obviously failed to clear it. We failed. Okay. We failed. On top of that, check out these yellow lines above and below the price action. These are known as Bollinger Bands. They're a visual representation of volatility in a given security. As it gets more volatile, the bands expand. As it gets less volatile, the bands shrink. This way, the, the way this works, the price action should stay within the bands roughly 90% of the time. Or in statistical terms, the bands show you where a security can go if it hits two standard deviations from its 50-day moving average. Inskip points out that over the past year, bear market rallies tend to run out of steam when they get two standard deviations away from this key moving average. And that's almost exactly where the S&P 500 went at its highs on Friday. Two standard deviations. Remember, these are the yellow lines that we care about. All right? Every time the S&P gets near that top Bollinger Band, well, guess what? It peaks. Right there. Of course, that's a temporary pattern. It's not going to hold forever. But when the S&P failed to break out above that key ceiling of resistance, Inskip thinks we went right back into bear market mode. The S&P can still escape from this new trajectory, but she won't have much confidence in a bounce unless we blow through last Friday's levels. Possible, but you know what? Certainly didn't feel like probable today. However, just because Inskip's feeling more cautious about the S&P, that doesn't mean she's more, more negative about everything else. Sure, if you're, real, if you're worried solely about the Fed strangling the life of the economy, then last week's labor report number was not encouraging. When you drill down into the job openings data, though, you get some real insight into the industries that are still booming and may keep booming even if the Fed stays hawkish. Now, we know, for instance, there's a travel boom fueling demand for new airplanes. And sure enough, aerospace manufacturing jobs are up 6% year over year and still climbing month over month. Plus, you've got all the Fed infrastructure spending kicking in next year. Suddenly, it'll be a huge boon for, the, for tons of industrial uh, stocks. So I want you to do this. I want you to check out the chart of the S&P 500 Industrial Sector Index, okay? This is the relative to the performance of the broader S&P 500 that you're looking at. The, this industrial sub-index contains both infrastructure and aerospace plays. Inskip points out that the SME industrials have broken out in recent weeks, surging above the resistance zone of the recent trading range. That tells her the industrials should keep outperforming the broader market. See, even though it's run a lot, and you may think, well, wait a second, doesn't have to rest or go down. She says this relative strength is incredible news. Well, the S&P failed to clear the hurdle. The S&P industrials, they pulled it off. You know how much I like the industrials. I talk about them constantly. By the way, I, talk, I have this mid-morning, I don't know if you ever watch my morning meeting, but I do this thing at 10, 20, and I talk about the industrials almost every day, but it's only for uh, investing club members. Now, if you want to pick one stock that's industrial in here, I almost, oh, shoot, I didn't want to show you because everybody hates this stock. It's General Electric. This is relative to the rest of the industries. Remember, 20% of GE's business comes down to aerospace, and their energy business is finally back to life. And that's, you know, think about it as windmills. That's not oil and gas anymore. We saw the S&P 500 fail to break out above its downward sloping trend line, a crucial ceiling of resistance. Well, GE busted through that ceiling like the Kool-Aid man. Inskip thinks that's tremendous relative performance. She likes what that says about GE's future. Now, remember, GE's breaking up. 
Uh, it's going to be a big healthcare division. A lot of people talking about it. Coming out from another angle, take a look at the action GE in comparison to some crucial Fibonacci levels. Fibonacci levels, what are this? Okay, remember, chartists love to measure past swings to a given stock and then run them through the prism of Fibonacci ratios to kind of find key levels where that stock's likely to change its trajectory. After its recent run, GE is now stalling around the 50% retracement. Well, eh, okay, up from the decline from the highs in December of last year. Uh, through the lows this July. Given its relative outperformance, it gives Betty it can push through this. And if that happens, it could go all the way to 94 before hitting the next ceiling. Wouldn't that be incredible? It would be starting to go back to where it was when they announced the breakup, which nobody seemed to like. I thought it made a lot of sense. Plus, it sure doesn't hurt that GE is now trading above its 200-day moving average. We always care about stocks above 200-day. Not many of them right now. It's hard to find. Here's the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by Jessica Inskip suggest that the broader market might be in for a bumpy ride as we exit bear market rally mode, but she still likes the industrials in, gen- in general, and she likes General Lich in particular, GE. And you know what? I think she's got a point. I like the GE restructuring. Again, I particularly like the healthcare business and the aerospace. Let's take phone calls. Let's go to Joe in my home state of New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you back. What's up? Yes. Um, My stock is 3M. uh, With the low P.E., off its highs, and a nice dividend, is 3M a buy? It is really a quandary to me. You know, they're also thinking about spinning off a division I really like. What I worry about here is even though they are dividend aristocrat, I don't like all the lawsuits that they're getting, whether it be the tinnitus lawsuits. I have terrible tinnitus myself, although I'm working on a drug to try to, to try to at least stabilize it. And I don't like any groundwater lawsuits, and they've got those two. So I am concerned about those two pieces of business, and that has kept me from the stock for 100 points. Right, the charts, as interpreted by the terrific Jessica Inskip, suggest that the broader market might be in for a bumpy ride. But she still likes the industrials. And the one she likes in particular is General Electric. And I think she's got a point. I think Larry Culp is doing a great job. And he is not appreciated for the work he's doing. How much more may add money at? Are you call me on the super microcomputer. I, it, it, I didn't remember it. I can't remember everything. I, got, I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on here, yeah? So I want to do a little more work. And tonight I'm turning in my homework on this tech stock. It's kind of interesting. Then guess whose birthday? Happy birthday to you, Dogecoin. And to celebrate, I'm issuing, well, let's just say a uh, something less than a present about the once hot crypto coin. And I think you're going to want to hear it. Quickly, if you own it, then you can really, really rethink your view of me. And all your calls, rapid fire, and tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Anytime I get a question about a stock I can't answer, I always do the research and then circle back to you with what I hope is a more considered response than what I can just say, hey, I like that stock. Lately, for some reason, these homework items have been coming hot and heavy. I want to make sure we don't head into the holidays with an outstanding balance. So the goal is to get you your answers as fast as possible. Remember, we take the stocks down. If I don't get the answer, we write it down. We meet with the research well, research department, mostly me and Ben Stoto, try to figure out what to do, and voila, brings me to net last Friday. When Jeremiah in Texas called about Super Micro Computer, a San Jose-based maker of server equipment. 
Now, I didn't really recognize this one, but I could see two things. Super microcomputers, tremendous growth, and its stock has been hot, hot, hot. Even in an environment where most tech is freezing, except for MongoDB tonight, the dollar's thing's up more than 100% for the year. See, this is what they used to look like, isn't it? All the more impressive given how awful tech has been this year and how awful the year's been. Yet, even though the stock's run, it still appears to be undervalued, which is hard to believe. That's why I told Jeremiah that super microcomputers seem too good to be true. That was just my gut instinct, though. After doing some digging, i got to say I'm a little bit torn. I like the business here, less sure about the stock. Let me walk you through it. Supermicro is in the business of making application-optimized, high-performance, high-efficiency server and storage systems. This stuff you need for data centers or cloud computing or artificial intelligence, the or 5G networks, though those are the hottest trends in tech. They got their own proprietary server designs. The idea here is that their hardware makes it cheaper to run a data center. We like that. And it's even a little more energy efficient results in big savings for these huge server warehouses. What's odd about Supermicro is that most data center stocks have been performing very poorly this year, while this one's been roaring higher. An oddity. How in the world did they pull that off? Well, it's not like Supermicro came out of nowhere. Not only was the company founded nearly 30 years ago, it came public back in 2007, which really bothered me that I didn't know. I'd like to think that I know all the stocks from that era. Uh, I, t- I took a while for this one. It took a while for this one to catch on, though. See, look at this. It kind of did nothing for ages. Uh, because that was right before the financial crisis hit. As the economy rebounded, though, Supermicro shares steadily, steadily bounced back. It was stuck in the teens for years, then surged to 40 in early 2015 before sinking back to the teens a few years later. It's been all over the place. The reason I didn't recognize Supermicro is it's been a pretty small outfit for the bulk of its existence as a publicly traded company. It's only become notable in the last few years because the stock has soared. Supermicro's rallied from the teens at the COVID crash lows all the way to the mid-80s as of today, including a 102% run just for 2022. So how do we explain this incredible run? In the first phase, it's pretty obvious. Supermicro is a data center play at a time of tremendous demand for anything that goes into the server warehouses. The company's sales surge. They've more than doubled over the last five years, and the earnings have more than tripled over the same period. What's interesting is that it kept running even as many other hardware plays have struggled. You gotta understand, IT hardware is one of the most disrespected industries on earth right now. Wall Street has little interest in this stuff, particularly the semiconductors that go in it, with some rare exceptions, because they've seen as they're seen now as a cyclical boom bust industry, and there's no edge. I, people used to love this area so much because that we had known this great secular growth. Not anymore. Now it's regarded as cyclical, just like if it we're making like coal or something. There's always some new competitor waiting in the wings to make roughly the same thing and undercut you on pay. Only, only uh, enterprise software is worse. That's why Supermicro has historically been a pretty cheap stock, and it still is. It trades, this thing trades at eight and a half times earnings, this year's earnings estimates, largely because the companies expect to have a down year in 2023. Business really is that cyclical. You can't own a stock if the number's going to be down next year. It really will take a hit as the broader economy slows down. That's just a fact of life. It's the way things are now. The stock's been holding up much, much better of late because it's become clear to Wall Street that Supermicro's different. It's not your typical IT hardware play. These guys have been outgrowing the rest of the industry by a really pretty wide margin as of late. Maybe they're just, they make better service. 
Maybe they've got a better suit than not offering for data centers. Either way, the numbers have been indeed fantastic. That's what's behind the stock's tremendous run this year. For example, a little over a month ago, Supermicro reported a magnificent top and bottom line beat. They earned a $3.42 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $2.54. Sales coming in $200 million higher than anticipated. There are very few companies that have been that much better, even better. Their forecast for the next quarter came extremely strong, and they raised their full-year outlook substantially. CEO Charles Lang pointed out that this was their seventh consecutive quarter of accelerating year-over-year growth. That's extraordinary. Sales were up 79% year-over-year. Put that in the top 10. In response, the stock surged from $71 for the quarter to 95 at its all-time high just last week. I mean, look at this. Boom, okay? Remember those days? Well, they're here. If you got the right stock, pulled back to 86 today. And look, uh, but Supermicro deserved that rally. The company's doing great. However, it's hard to figure out how much to pay for these earnings in such a difficult environment. Right after the quarter, two of the analysts who cover Supermicro raised their price targets, but the numbers are all over the place. Webbush took their target from 55 to 65. Well, that's way below, right? Northland raised theirs from 137 to 165. Whoa, well, that would be something. My view. It depends on how badly Supermicro gets hit next year. I think you can easily justify paying 10 times earnings for something like this, but we just don't know how well the earnings will hold up. Still, given management's forecast for 2023, I can easily see the stock going 102 and change. That said, Supermicro is an extremely risky momentum name in this kind of environment. You've only got my blessing to buy it for pure speculation. Bottom line, overall, I like what I see from Supermicro, the business, but as for the stock, I say maybe start with a small position and and only use money you can afford to lose, please, because you're fighting against the current of the broader market here. But at least you're doing so with a powerful ally. And I got to thank Jeremiah. This was a great idea to look at this picture. I love your calls. I do not ignore them. We double down when we don't know the answer. We have money's back in. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round, next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Can you remember this? Bring your calls around for those who are talk about the building. You play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skinny Dad, the lightning round is over. Let's start with Greg. In Minnesota, Greg. Yes. Uh, Jim, well, uh, thank you for taking my call. I've been a fan of yours for years. Thank you. Uh, I have a question on SoFi. I know you liked it at $5. How about $4? I know. It's killing me. It's killing me. I mean, here we got a guy, a very seasoned guy who runs a company, Anthony Noto. He's done a good job in everything else he's ever done, and this one is not working. I don't know what to say. Maybe student loan related. The banks aren't working. And yet, I think, look, you can buy J.P. Morgan on sale, baby. It's just, whoa, what can I say? Let's go to Izzy in New York. Izzy. Jim, how are you? I am good. How about you? Very good. Stock and you, the Brazilian company. Profits show good. uh, It's another financial company. When I got U.S. financials, which were, until last Friday, were just coming in with a head of steam. And I still like them, and I would be a buyer of them, not that. I want to go to Sean. In California, Sean. Hey, how you doing, Jim? I am good. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm just out here looking for earnings and value. Okay. And what would that be? 
uh, super group, SGHC. Okay, this is Earth Women's Company. I've, I had Eric Rubin on twice about this. This is a gambling-related company, and it is shocking where it is. And I think that it, that it is hard to believe that he isn't in there buying the stock hand over fist because it has come down so much, and he's a very, very smart guy. But I don't know what more to say. Can I go to David in Connecticut? David! Hi, Jimmy. Thank you for having me, and I hope you're doing well. Uh, I I'm having a good time. What you, how about you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm studying accounting and finance at Central Connecticut State University. So for my Fantastic. finance project, my question... My question for you is, with the recent dip in tech stocks, what is your outlook on Micron as a buy right now? Okay, Micron is a commodity player. I think that they're almost through the uh, what they've got is an inventory glut. I think inventory glut lasts another six weeks, and then the stock could be off to the races. But in the interim, can we understand that if that's the case, then there are others that would be even better, including Advanced Micro. Well, now people are starting to say that they paid too much when they bought Xilinx. Let's go to Shash in Indiana. Shash. Hey, Jim, uh, big fan here. Uh, so my question is that, you know, I've been long dropping up since the time to IPO it, and I still am with the stock getting absolutely destroyed. So, you know, my question is that, is this the bottom for the stock or, you know, a good time and a good time to double down or would you wait until... And which which stock is this? Robinhood. No, no, I, I don't want you to double down. I got brokerage stocks that are fantastic that are going down left to right. I can't recommend that one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, we all know caveat emptor. But what's Latin for crypto catastrophe? Stick with Kramer. Maybe these staggering losses in crypto should have been more obvious, but speculative manias are tricky like that. Everybody listens to the boosters on the way up, while the skeptics don't get a lot of airtime until it's too late. That's why I think it's worth celebrating the birth of one of the great busts of all time, the crypto joke known as Dogecoin, which was created nine years ago this very day as a kind of living satire of cryptocurrency. But the problem with satire is it could be mistaken for the real thing, which is how Dogecoin ended up wrecking so many people's lives. Happy birthday, Dogecoin. Thanks for nothing. I think it's important to understand how we got here. The whole speculative arc of crypto, because this story is far from finished. I bet there'll be more Sam Bankman frees before it's over, although it'll be, they're going to be lesser imitators. I don't think anybody else can come close to SBF in the alleged fraud Olympics. Very important to say alleged, although on his talking tour, he is making it hard to keep saying alleged. First, there was good intent here at the very beginning. The guys who created Dogecoin knew the crypto space was getting ridiculous, so they created this joke coin kind of as a parody. But there's still 13 billion dollars worth of Dogecoin trading. That's a staggering figure for a worthless token that was literally set up as a punchline. Of course, the joke here was always that Dogecoin is no less legitimate than any other cryptocurrency. Oh, and it has the God-fearing blockchain behind it. Part of Dogecoin's attraction was always that it had a very low dollar price, a sub-dollar handle. And look, for most of its existence, its value was pretty steady. That is until things went nuts in the spring of 2021, as Dogecoin's market cap quickly surged from $8 billion to $88 billion in the course of a month, aided by vocal cheerleader Elon Musk, who seemed to get behind this kind of as a way to be in on the joke. He's always had that comedic stand-up side to him. 
Dogecoin peaked around 73 cents when Musk danced on Saturday Night Live and hyped it in an offhanded way, disappointing many of the Doge faithful who wanted a more full-throated endorsement. It's been all downhill ever since. Now at 10 cents, just waiting for someone new to pump it up as an investment all over again, like all the other loser cryptocurrencies. But as we all know, there's only one Musk. Maybe you should think this is small potatoes. This, but its peak Dogecoin alone represented. Let's see. Let's get a, let's get an analogy here. How about a quarter of renegade Robinhood's revenues? Didn't seem to matter. That it was supposed to be a joke. It was big business for the upstart brokerage firm. Now this morning, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, told CNBC that his firm's been quite judicious in the coins it trades, like he's trying to keep people out of this stuff. Sure. Yet Robinhood still trades 19 of them, including Dogecoin, as well as Avalanche, Cardano, Chainlink, Compound, Litecoin, Lowcoin, Polygon, Shiba Inu, Shiba Inu. I mean, so much for sale activity. Maybe Robinhood is more of a problem than a solution. Look, on the eve of another cartoon show, which is the GameStop earnings report tomorrow, I think we have to do some soul searching about what's really going on here. You can buy some of the greatest blue chip stocks in the world right now. Everything is on sale. Everything yesterday and today. A lot of quality merchandise that keeps being marked down, which is why it's so important that you steer clear of anything that is losing money right now and might be worthless down the road. Because if you're worried it might be worthless, odds are it's going to get there in this environment. It's never too late to get out of genuine losing positions, except if there's no bid price, which is most likely the case when it comes to the crypto cousin, non-fungible tokens. As a fabulous comedian once riddled me, how am I supposed to understand what a non-fungible token is when I don't even know what a fungible one is? The answer, you aren't. That's half the con. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here in Man Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow! Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.